I think this may be my first podcast that has Australian surfers in it. It may also be the first one in which an internationally recognized expert in overdiagnosis reframes the problem as, quote, turning healthy people into patients, end quote, or calls out industry sponsoring studies of its own products as absolutely absurd. But that's what it's like talking with Ray Moynihan, an Australian investigative journalist turned healthcare researcher who throws blistering left hooks at the medical industrial complex again and again. And believe me, he connects with each punch. And we connect with him for many reasons, not the least of which is that 18 years ago, he was a major player in a seminal work published in the New England Journal of Medicine that helped form the foundation of the review criteria we use every day here at healthnewsreview.org. I learned a lot from my conversation with Ray Moynihan, and I'm betting you will too. Yeah, the first thing, though, Ray, I'm interested in is your career path, because um, probably like my own, it's been anything but linear. And if you don't mind, could you just tell us a bit about that path and, and what that's been like? Yes, I can, Michael. So I'm, I guess I'm a bit unusual. I started off my life as a, as a journalist and I've ended up as a, as a junior academic <laughs> in my mid fifties as my hair goes gray. Um, and you know, the, 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 the career path really was uh, motivated by a deepening interest in medicine in healthcare, in 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 how the system of healthcare works, and in a sense, the the mismatch between public understanding about health and medicine and the reality of health and medicine. And the more you write about this as a journalist, and the more you learn about healthcare as an academic, it becomes very clear uh, that there is a huge gulf between the sort of uh, public consciousness, if you will. And, uh, and the reality. So did you find yourself somewhat enraged or what was the emotion that you associated with that realization? Uh, many emotions, but I think bewilderment is one of them. As a journalist, I, I witnessed firsthand the roar of the marketing machine in medicine. Not only comes from industry, uh, but comes from the academy, comes from the professional societies, and increasingly from the patient groups. And that roar is a terribly distorting impact on the way we understand medicine, the way we understand healthcare. It, it, it over-promotes the benefits and it underplays the harms. And so we all end up with this bizarrely exaggerated idea of what medical treatments can do, what medical tests can do, uh, the value of medical diagnoses. Uh, so, so there was bewilderment. Uh, there was occasionally outrage. There was surprise. There was curiosity to learn more. Uh, and so I guess if there's any, any sort of aspirant journalists out there listening, there are a few better career paths than becoming a journalist interested in covering healthcare. The need for rigorous public scrutiny of medicine, of the healthcare system, has never been greater. 
And, and it's interesting because now here you find yourself an academic at Bond University. You're along the Gold Coast there and in, in, on the East Coast of Australia. And in a way, you're coming back to journalism with your, with your new podcast, The Recommended Dose, which, if I'm right, it's it's relatively new. I think you have about 10 episodes over the past 10 months. Is that right? That's right, Michael. Yes, The Recommended Dose, it's, it's funded and produced by Cochrane Australia, part of that global network of, of, of the Cochrane Collaboration. For people who don't know, uh, Cochrane produces systematic reviews of the evidence. It does a bunch of things, but its, it's primary role is to produce systematic reviews of the evidence Thousands and thousands of interventions uh, have now been reviewed, and so people can find, you know, good quality evidence about what works and what doesn't via Cochrane. And the podcast, the recommended dose, is very much about the importance of evidence. It's very much about, as I was saying before, this mismatch between public perceptions about medicine and the reality of what really works and what doesn't. And so uh, the podcast is, is a series of, of intimate conversations with some of the leading thinkers in medicine around the world. And they're just incredibly enjoyable conversations with uh, fascinating people. Um, and, and I'm having a lot of fun doing those podcasts. <laughs> You know, I can tell you have fun with them, and a few of them really caught my ear, and I thought we could revisit them to some extent to bring up some topics that are not only near and dear to you, but also us here at Health News Review. One of your podcasts that I really enjoyed opened with the sound of waves not far from where you work on the east coast of Australia. I want you to take me to that day. Tell me about that day and a bit about, you know, behind the scenes, if you will, and who you were interviewing that day and why. That was a very beautiful morning that you're referring to. Uh, it was a winter morning, I think I recall, on the Gold Coast, the east coast of Australia, not far from where I live, not far from the university where I work. The sun had just come up. I had to get up very early that morning. There were whales that, small, that morning, and I was interviewing a couple of surfers, one, one in particular who'd just come in from the water. And, of course, that person was uh, Paul Glasiew, Professor Paul Glasiew, happens to be my boss, also happens to be a kind of global expert in, in the evidence-informed approach to medicine, and increasingly someone who's extremely concerned about the danger of overdiagnosis, the danger of too many diagnoses, the dangers that the health system itself is bringing to us by labelling too many healthy people as being sick. Now, this sounds like a bizarre problem, but sadly, the evidence is mounting suggesting that that overdiagnosis, unnecessary diagnosis, unnecessary diagnostic labels are a real threat to human health. Let's step away from our interview with Ray Moynihan just for a moment because it strikes me that this issue of labeling healthy people as sick is one that is either completely neglected in news coverage or perhaps even worse, it's completely accepted and perpetuated without much scrutiny. 
For example, headlines that promote diseases like female sexual dysfunction that should be treated with Viagra, or low T in men that requires testosterone shots. What about a drug company that just happens to make eye drops, claiming that millions of us might be suffering from CDE, or chronic dry eyes? And you've undoubtedly come across clinics, patient advocacy groups, and major news outlets encouraging you to get screened in case you might have pre-cancer, pre-diabetes, or pre-hypertension. This is what Moynihan is talking about when he mentions overdiagnosis and the dangers of labeling healthy people as sick. But it's not intuitive, is it? After all, we're all somewhat hardwired to believe that it's better to be safe than sorry, that more is better. So I asked Moynihan, how does he convince people that too much health care has become a problem and that it really does have consequences? That's the big question. You know, the reality is that the problem of too much medicine has gained, is gaining a lot more attention. I mean, the British Medical Journal, one of the world's leading journals, launched a campaign called Too Much Medicine just a few years ago. Uh, JAMA Internal Medicine in the United States launched that uh, series Less Is More quite a few years ago now. So I think within the sort of medical establishment, if you will, there, there is growing concern about the problem of too much medicine. And I think, too, within the public, there is, a, there is an unease. Um, issues like antibiotic uh, resistance have really helped people understand that sometimes we can have too much of a good thing. CT scans, the, the, the risk of, of cancer being caused by too many CT scans, CAT scans, you know, is a really live issue. Uh, we, we recently interviewed um, Rita Redberg for the, the recommended dose, and she's the editor of JAMA Internal Medicine, and, and she has written very powerfully about the dangers of too many CAT scans. Now, now, of course, this this shouldn't drive us away from medicine. Uh, it, it goes without saying there are many, many valuable diagnostic tools and, and, and treatments and so on. And, of course, CT scans can prove life-saving if they're used appropriately. But there is no doubt that, that there are many drivers driving unnecessary care, too much medicine, too many diagnoses, over-diagnoses, overuse, and 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 you know we are we're sort of waking up to this problem. Let's take another timely topic because I remember when you interviewed Dr. Glasview, you guys were looking forward, and he touched on what he called, and I quote, "a looming disaster of overdiagnosis we are not prepared for," and that's this burgeoning area of genetic testing, which I guess you know precision medicine more broadly. I've podcasted on this, Ray. And there's no shortage of advocates for for genetic testing, but do you see it as as a sort of a new poster child for overdiagnosis? Y- yes, I heard that podcast, Michael, and and I think that like a lot of things in medicine, there will be value from precision medicine, from genomics. The, the, you know, there are already examples, but the way that we are headed, you know, there are huge red flags. And there are huge dangers here of turning everyone into a patient. The, the idea of offering genomic screening to the public 
which there are many advocates now pushing, overnight would turn all of us into patients, all of us as, as sort of a walking um, collection of predispositions to disease. You know, that, that is just a, a total and fundamental change in what it means to be human. You know, it, it, it's like everything. These things, uh, these technologies are new and they're shiny and they will certainly carry benefits for some. But the danger is they'll be, they'll be applied and used far too broadly. And, and of course, to be very crude, one of the reasons that will happen is because there's a lot of money to be made telling healthy people that they're sick. It's interesting that you bring up the, the, the shiny technology and the media hype because both of them, by their nature, they tend to get ahead of the evidence. And the thing about evidence-based medicine is I think we better define it because the phrase confuses my, my dad even. He's an old retired cardiologist, and he always says to me, he says, Michael, I thought that's what we've been doing all along, evidence-based medicine. So, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I do know what you mean. I, th- I think, look, I think that the term evidence-based medicine, what is it, 20, 30 years old, and it still causes, uh, you know, some reactions like that of your dad. Um, you know, it was deliberately designed, I understand, to, to, to be provocative. Because, yes, while, uh, while medical decisions had been, to some extent, based on evidence for a long time, the rigor that modern evaluation processes bring had not been brought to bear on many of the things that doctors did, and that is still the case today. So, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, medicine started to embrace these more rigorous evaluation methods, randomized trials, and then systematically reviewing the results of multiple randomized trials, meta-analysis where you you summarize the results. And in a a way, these are just basic evaluation tools to test how well a treatment works, uh, whether it works at all, what its harms are, and for which patients it might be beneficial. Now, now the facts are that many, many uh, treatments uh, before that had not been exposed to that level of evaluation. And that's why, uh, that's why the whole evidence-informed, evidence-based movement developed to, to address that problem. Yeah, and I, I, think of, I think of his own profession, cardiology, and stents are a good example, aren't they? Well, that's right, and stents are a good example. So I think the, the recent history of medicine will reveal many situations where uh, new technologies, new drugs, and so on have been unleashed with, with great fanfare, with great excitement. But then once the rigorous evaluation kicks in, once we know what the evidence is, uh, you know, things are shown to not work or to be even harmful. And let's take another break here because Moynihan is again touching on something that doesn't get much scrutiny by journalists, medical devices. We hear plenty about what it takes for drugs to come to market, but did you know this? Over 90% of medical devices end up being used without manufacturers even having to document that they safely work. Even those devices that are studied rarely undergo randomized controlled trials. Those are the gold standard in producing unbiased results. It's a lucrative industry filled with loopholes. In just the past month alone, 
we've covered hype news coverage of robotic surgeries that downplayed very real harms. A wearable heart monitor that may trigger a wave of diagnoses and subsequent treatment, but with as much potential for harm than good. And a dangerous contraceptive device that took 16 years to pull from the market despite a well-organized campaign against it and thousands of harms brought to the FDA's attention. And then Moynihan gives us this example. I mean, the, the pelvic mesh scandal. Uh, many of your listeners will know this, this horrifying example recently where doctors have been using pelvic mesh you know, around the world on the basis of incredibly weak evidence. And now, 10, 15 years later, all the horror stories emerge about, about the incredible pain and suffering that those, uh, that those devices have been causing. And of course, we're seeing them being withdrawn now. So I think the, the need for good evidence, uh, the need for rigorous evaluation uh, of, of all tests and treatments is still something that we are moving towards that we desperately need. And of course, then once the evidence is gathered, we need to share that and disseminate and, and have that accessible. It seems to me that evidence-based medicine has some problems to face, and not the least of which is the issue of polluted evidence. Things like conflict of interest, negative studies that don't get published nearly as much as the positive studies, good old-fashioned bias, etc., etc. I know there's plenty to choose from, but what do you think is the most worrisome source of so-called polluted evidence? Without a shadow of a doubt, the biggest source of that pollution is industry sponsorship of scientific studies, scientific and inverted commas, industry sponsorship of trials of their own products. I mean, this is is the most absurd situation one could ever imagine. We, we allow and encourage companies to fund the evaluation studies of their own products. How absurd. It's the wrong way to generate evidence uh, that the results of those studies we know have a sort of systemic or systematic bias in them that is polluting and distorting uh, the medical evidence base. And that may well be one of the biggest uh, challenges for medicine. If it wants to maintain public credibility, it must address that dirty secret. Uh, it's, 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 it's entanglement with industry um, that, that is terribly corrupting. It's been nearly 20 years ago that you co-authored the book Selling Sickness with Alan Castles up in Canada, who's one of our frequent contributors. And, and looking back, it sort of begs the question, has anything changed since then? Or what hasn't changed, I guess? I think what has changed is a, a consciousness about two things. One, about this problem of conflict of interest, this unhealthy coziness between industry and the profession. I mean, people have been concerned about that for a long time, but, but I think the concern about that is that it is intensifying and sooner or later something's going to have to give, that there is going to be more independence. Regulators and, and uh, governments will demand it. Populations will demand it. Um, I think the second thing is there is an increasing awareness about this problem of too many diagnoses unnecessarily labelling people. 
And I, you know, I think it sounds so simple, but but one of the things I keep coming back to is the value of a publicly funded universal access healthcare system. And in some ways, that is perhaps one of the best um, ways to prevent a huge amount of medical excess so much of which is driven by the by the commercial forces and i think it's not only critical for the health of those who miss out on medicine and who aren't getting access to the medicines they need but they may also be vital in helping us deal with the problem of too much Um, and so strengthening our regulatory systems strengthening the solidarity that underpins uh, our health systems Uh, while it may seem simple and an old idea uh, may well be one of the best ways of, of dealing with this problem of medical excess I really want to thank you. I want to thank you for sharing your time and your insights with us. It's it's really a pleasure learning from you. No, Michael, same to you. I'm I'm very very grateful for the work of of, of yourself and and uh, Gary and all of the team at Health News Review. Um, it, it's made a fantastic contribution. This podcast is a production of HealthNewsReview.org. It's produced at our institutional home, the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. I'm Michael Joyce. Thanks for listening.